I had a plan. And in my mind, it was foolproof. I was all of eight years old, and I thought, I've got this figured out. See, I had this habit. I would get home from church, uh, usually in the afternoon when my dad was resting, my dad was a pastor, I would rifle through his jacket pockets. You know, I had these suits hanging in the closet. I would rifle through, and on occasion, I'd find some loose change, right? Uh, this was in Bolivia, so these were Bolivian pesos. But on occasion, you know, some coins, maybe a loose bill. I'm not sure where they came from, where, but I just like, I would take it and I would hang on to it and I would save it so that I could go and uh, buy me some snacks on the street or play some games. So I had this plan. I was going to get whatever I could find and it was going to work for me. And my dad would not be the wiser. Are you with me? Ever try to pull a fast one? And on this particular uh, weekend, there was a special event going on in my city where they put this outdoor market and they have all these games. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I had a lot of autonomy for an eight-year-old. This was Bolivia. So we could kind of walk around the city on our own. So I had this plan. I was going to rifle through the entire closet this time. And I was going to get as much as I could. And I was going to make my way. I was going to have some fun. So I rifled through. Didn't find anything. Went through the black suit, the gray suit, the paisley suit. Yeah, he had a paisley suit. It was like from the 70s. I had a paisley suit, nothing in there. And so I decided to get a little bold and I started rifling through his desk. And I hit the jackpot. Okay, okay, he's not paying attention. My son's not paying attention. Good, I can talk. I, I hit the jackpot. I found there in one of those drawers some bills, big bills. You know, the kind that aren't folded yet. You know, big bills. And there were several of them. And I I was like, oh. I put it in my pocket and I was like, this is going to be even better than I thought. It was going to be awesome. Naturally, my plan involved getting my best friend who lived next door and I called him. I was like, it's on. Sunday morning, we're like, this is it. It's happening. It's done. So we got up on Sunday and I had it in my pocket and I was like, it's going to be awesome. So we said, you know, we normally walk and we ride the bus, but I'm loaded. So we try to hail a taxi. Two eight-year-olds try to hail a taxi. Taxi pulled over like, we want to go so this place. Like, you got no money. And I flashed my money and the dude got scared and ran. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what's going on. So we hoofed it. We made it to the, it's called Alasitas, this, this, this street fair. And we started having fun and everything was going great. I was playing games, we were eating snacks, drinking sodas, my friend and I. And suddenly, suddenly I hear somebody calling my name. I hear somebody calling my name. It's my older brother. It's my older brother. He knew where I'd gone. He knew what I'd be up to, and he found me. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, what? I'm just having some fun. Can a little brother have some fun, right? And he's like, a mom is looking for you. <gasps> I hadn't planned for that. That wasn't part of the deal. He's like, I don't know what you did. But I know you did something. He did not know it was burning a hole in my pocket. He's like, but my mom is looking for you. And so suddenly, my well-oiled plan, I was going to do this, get back home. No one would be the wiser. I had to start thinking fast. So I had to come up with plan B. I talked to my friend. I was like, you know what this means, right? We're going to have to hit the road. That's it. Right? Because when, when you know you've been caught... Right? When you know you've been caught and you know what's going to happen when you get home. I don't know about you guys, but I, you know, I grew up in South America as a Bolivian household. 
There's no such thing as uh, child abuse there. You know, they just, they, it's called discipline. That's what it is. There's no CPA there. There's a, it's, it's called discipline. And it's in the form of a hand-woven leather belt with three ends on it, not for cattle, for children. And uh, I knew what was, I knew what was going to go home if I went home. So I was like, I told my friend, I was like, Huevito, yeah, his name is, his name is Little Egg. Huevito, I was like, you know what this means. We're going to make a run for it. That's right. So he's like, I, 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 I was like, you're with me now. You're with me, right? You were there all along. So you're in us now. We got to make a run for it. So we decided we need to, we need to run away. Anybody ever try to run away? You're with me? You try to run away? Now, I didn't pack any clothes, but my plan was, but I was like, we got enough money. We just need to run away. That is the answer. We need to run, and we need to run away. So we hopped on another bus because the taxis wouldn't take us. We hopped on another bus. We weren't quite sure where to go. We lived, I told you, my father was a pastor. We lived next door to the church in a, in a parsonage, lived next door. I didn't know where else to go. So the only destination I could think of was another church on the other side of town where we used to pastor. So I was like, let's go there. Sanctuary, right? So my friend and I got on this bus, and we made it. We hooked it to the other side, and then we're like, okay, we're we're far from, I don't know where to go next. What are we going to next? And I was four in the afternoon, and my brother found me again. He's like, I know where you're going. I was like, you better get home. The longer you stay out, the worse it gets. And I panicked, and I panicked. The whole time, I was thinking to myself, what can I do to avoid these circumstances? Because when you're caught, and you know you're caught, what you want to do is you want to run, right? You want to run away. You want to run. But I never really stopped to think what my parents were feeling at the time. All I could envision was them being upset at me. Now as a father and as a parent, when I think about this, I wonder what kind of emotions would go through my mind if my little nine-year-old ran away. You with me? I, I could only picture my mom was being upset. But now as a parent, thinking about it, she must have been frightened and, and worried and uh, Maybe she did want to get me. I don't know, but, but I, I never really stopped to think. All I could think is about getting away, running away. And I thought in my own mind as an eight-year-old that that was the answer, that I was going to run away and that would make it better. I ran and I hid. You know why? It's in my nature. <laughs> I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve. We've been studying the story in the book of Genesis. You all remember the story. We've been reading here the last couple of weeks. I'll summarize it really quick in case you haven't been here. In the beginning, God. I will repeat that. In the beginning, God. You see, God is the origin of our story. The Bible says that before there was anything, there was God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything in it. And when it came time, he created you and me. Amen? You believe that? I'm not sure that you do, but that's okay. That's what the Bible says. In the beginning, God. This is important, friends. It's important for us to understand that the origin of our story is God. It begins with him. Everything begins with him. Our identity, because the Bible says there in Genesis 1, when it was time to create mankind, God said, let us make men in our image. And so he did. He created us, male and female, in his image. You and I originate in the heart and the mind of God, and we were made to be like him. We were designed and created to be compatible with God. And, and in a unique way, we were designed and created to be in community. 
This is what we've been studying here on our campus. The Bible tells us there in Genesis 1 that when God came to create you, he said, let us, you hear it? It's plural. Make man in our image. See, God exists in the plural because he is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. All three were present at creation. All three were involved in creation. And so when we were created, we were created and designed to exist in relationship, in community. And the Bible tells us that God put man and, and woman in the garden and they were doing great under his protection, his provision, as we talked about last week. But then, then Adam and Eve came up with a different plan. The serpent said, hey, you guys don't want to stay connected to him. You should eat of the fruit, go out and have some fun. Just, just like I did a long, long time ago. Go out and have some fun. What could go wrong, right? Uh, Eve said, no, no, we're not supposed to eat that. But the serpent said, what's, what's the big deal? What could go wrong? Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. She ate it. Adam ate it. And you remember, we, we read this in, in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3, that when, when God came walking in the garden, he came looking for Adam and Eve. And they did what? They hid. They ran away. They ran away. And God said, why are you hiding? They're like, we were guilty. We were afraid. We ran away. And God asked, what have you done? See, in that one moment, what we did as mankind, is we chose to forge our own path rather than to trust the originator of our story, the designer of, of our creation, we decided to forge our own path. And the Bible tells us, this is what we read last week in Genesis chapter 3, that God had no choice but to let us live out the consequences of our choices, of our sin. And so at the end of chapter 3, he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. That's what we ended last week. He banishes Adam and Eve. He curses the ground. He curses the snake. He puts a curse on us, men and women, pain and work and salad. The ground will produce weeds and salad. We were not meant to. Do that. Okay, we digress. <laughs> and so we are banished from the garden. And, and, and when we read that, when we read that in Genesis chapter 3, we think and we look at this text and we have for the rest of humankind looked at this concept through the eyes of the 8-year-old who runs away and all he can see or feel is fear and shame and then resentment for having been pushed out. But what we fail to see oftentimes is the heart of the Father. God had to send us out. It was our choice. But imagine what he felt like having to push his own kids out. I know that there may be somebody in this room who's had to do a moment of tough love with somebody in your family. And you can understand the heartbreak of a parent who has to force a son or a daughter out. Because that's what they choose. And yet the Bible tells us that God would not leave it alone. He was not willing to settle in to that reality. He was not willing to let us go that route. So he tells us in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis that he created a way, a path. We call it the plan of salvation, whereby in time his one and only son would come and take our place. We were on the out. He was on the in. He would come down and replace us, and he would be on the out, and we would get to come back in. We call it the plan of salvation salvation. In the fullness of time, the Bible tells us, this is a biblical language, in the fullness of time, God's plan came to fruition. And the story is recorded in the Gospels, and one particular telling of it is found in the book of John. I want you to go there with me, please. This is the time we got to read your word. Well, you didn't come to church to listen to me. You came to read your word. Here it is. Open a Bible in front of you, apps, phones, whatever, and there's one in the pew in front of you. John chapter 1. We're in the New Testament, fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. And this is what it says. In the beginning was the word. I love that. 
When I was in college, if we study this in the Greek over and over and over again, in the beginning was the word. See, what the author is doing here, right at the beginning of the story of Jesus, is he's connecting the dots between this moment in creation and history and the original moment. You hear it? In the beginning. In the beginning. And here John says, in the beginning was the Word. It's a capital W because it's a proper noun. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. John begins to describe, and what we know about the Bible, and what we choose to believe about the Bible is that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us truths about God that we could not conceive of our own mind. So John, the author here, inspired by God, is giving us insight into things that we could not capture or imagine of our own. And he says to us, in the beginning, way back in Genesis, was the Word, capital W, proper pronoun. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I love that. It begins to retell the story that God said, let us make men in our image. And so John is saying, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, proper noun. In the beginning, but the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God has always been community. He's always been, in essence, a multiple of himself. Not multiple separate gods, but in community. That's who he is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. The author continues to repeat with, with, and with. And then he says this. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word, capital W, became flesh, skin, bone and made his living among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, friends, this is what's happening in the story of us. In the beginning, God made us to live in constant relationship with him under his guidance and influence. We were meant to walk with him every day, but we chose a different path. We ran away. We thought we could make it on our own. And everything that you and I suffer from, every burden that you're carrying today, whether it's physical, emotional, or otherwise, is a result of that choice and the choices that you and I make to perpetuate moving away from God. But God would not leave it alone. He said, I don't want you to be outside. I don't want you to be orphaned. I don't want you to run away. I want you home. I want you with me. So he sent his son. The word became flesh. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John says that we call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You see it? God with us. It was God's original intent that we would be with him in companionship with him. We were made compatible. We could talk to him. He could influence us. That was our design. That's, that's where we come from. That's our origin story. And that is where God wants to take us again. So he sends his son at a time in our history when we were separated from God. Sin creates the separation. It did it then and it does every time in your life when you choose your own path other than God's directions. It separates us. God sent his son so he could be with us. God with us. And Jesus comes upon the earth and he begins to exemplify and teach us what it means to live with God. To live in constant relationship with God. 
Bible tells us that Jesus, and in the book of John especially, uh, exists and does only what God tells him to do. If you, in fact, if you read John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, Jesus repeats over and over again that he has come from the Father to do the will of the Father and cannot do anything but what the Father wants. And it is because it is not his words, they come from God. He is in constant relationship. He is with God, but now he is also being with us. And so Jesus comes upon the earth, skin and bone, to teach us what it's like to live with God. The book of John tells us in John chapter 9 that one day Jesus was uh, walking. This is a fantastic story. I'm just going to read it for you here. Jesus was walking along and he sees a blind man who has been born blind from birth. And his disciples turn to him and they say, Teacher, well, who's responsible for this? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that this happened to him? And Jesus says, Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Uh, but this happens so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud, and put it on the man's eyes. And then he said to him, Go, wash in the pool. And the man went, washed. And after he washed, he came came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging on the street, they said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it can't be him. It only looks like him. But he would insist, I am that man. And so they said, well, how, how is it possible that your eyes are open? And he said, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it in my eyes. He told me to wash. I washed and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. Jesus is walking along, and what's unique about this particular uh, miracle is that Jesus initiates it. Jesus is walking along, and he comes upon somebody, he sees a need, and he moves towards it. And while his disciples are nitpicking uh, theological points about this, this, that Jesus says, no, no, no. Everything that I'm doing is to glorify God. This is what it means to live with God. Every action that I do, the purpose of it is to glorify God. So it comes to the man, creates this mud, puts it on his eyes, and the man comes home seen. Look what happens next. <clears throat> Verse 13, chapter 9. I'm don't, I'm no, I know I'm going fast. Oh, well. They brought, to the, they brought through the Pharisees the man who had been blind. 13, chapter 9, book of John. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees also asked him, how did you get your sight? Well, he put mud in my eyes, he says, and I watched and now I see. Very simple. I couldn't see. There was mud and now I watched and then I could see. And they said, this man cannot be from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Fantastic there, right? See, this is what some people's view of religion is. That it's all about some sort of rules and regulations. And even in the face of miracles, all they can say is, oh, well, he broke the rules. Silly, right? This, this man cannot be. But others said, well, how is it possible that a sinner would do such miraculous signs? Finally, they turned to the blind man and said, okay, what do you have to say about him? I mean, it was your eyes that were open. <laughs> And the man said, well, he must be a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight. They're like, well, this can't be right. This must be a trick. So they were sent for the man's parents. And they said, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? What do you have to say for yourselves? How can he see? And the parents said, well, we know he's our son. <clears throat> and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's old enough. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. 
So it's already been decided. Anyone who accepted Jesus Christ will be put in a synagogue. And so his parents said, well, he's old enough. Ask him. And so a second time, they summoned the man, and they said, give glory to God. Now, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. There's the one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that cool? Hey, I can't answer that, but this I know. I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? What did he do? To, how did you open your eyes? <laughs> and he says, look, I already told you, and you don't believe me. You want to hear again? You guys want to be his disciples too? At this, they got upset. They started insulting him. You're this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. And the man says, well, that's remarkable. You don't know anything about him, but he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard the opening eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, then he could not do anything. And they're like, how dare you lecture us? You are steeped in sin. Like that? Steeped in sin. So that's a nice insult. Anytime you don't want to, hey, you're steeped in sin. Get away from me. <laughs> you are steeped in sin. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And Jesus heard that this, the man had been thrown out, and he found him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man asked, yes, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe. And Jesus said, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one who's talking to you right now. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. There's this moment that Jesus reveals himself. But I want you to understand what Jesus is doing. He's teaching us what it means to live with God among us, with us and with God. He sees suffering, he moves toward it, and by the power and the glory of God, he resolves pain and suffering. Humankind can't accept it. The religious leaders can't accept it. All we can do is rules and regulations and drama. And this man says, I don't know anything about that. I can't answer. I cannot answer this, but this I know. I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus says, do you believe? And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. What I like about this story is, is, is Jesus doesn't really have an agenda. He's not trying to unsettle or disprove f for politics' sake. He's merely addressing her to knees because that's what the Father wants. That's what the Father's up to. And so Jesus is only living out what the Father tells him to do. And in this particular story, he does it without, mm, without attenuating circumstances. He doesn't get begged, nothing like that. He just sees a need and he addresses it because that is what the Father's up to. See? In God's original design, we were meant to live under the protection and the blessing and the goodwill of God. Remember, we read it in Genesis chapter 2. God said, hey, you have the entire creation. You can eat of every tree. Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase in number. Subdue the earth. Go have some fun. Look at all the stuff I made. Go splash around. That's the heart of God. Under his blessing and provision, we were meant to live life in an amazing way. But we chose to do other. And this other has led us to places of fear and shame and guilt and running away and trying to find our own way back. But there's only one way back. A few, um, a few chapters later, they're in the book of John. And this is where we'll end today, so don't be afraid. You're like, oh, another one. John chapter 14. 
John chapter 14, just a few pages later. See, Jesus, that's, that's an example of Jesus' miraculous power, and it'll make sense in just a second. Jesus heals the blind. He brings uh, healing. In fact, in the pages that we're not reading, he brings somebody back from the dead. But now, Jesus is getting close to the end of his time on earth after his three and a half years or so of earthly public ministry. And in the moment we're about to read, he's in the upper room. You know that place after they had the Lord's Supper? And, and in just a few short hours, Jesus is going to be led to the cross and to be crucified. But in the upper room, Jesus begins to express these things to his disciples in a very clear way. And he says, I have come to be with you, but soon I have to go back. And the disciples are concerned. And then Jesus responds this way. Follow along with me, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart, these will all be familiar. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I want you to hear the echo there. Do you believe in God? Will you trust me? I've just put some mud in your eyes. Will you go wash it? You see that? Jesus doesn't miraculously bring healing. The man has required to act in faith, to go wash his eyes before the scene returns. It is not... It is not solely by God's overwhelming provision that healing comes. That's always been present. It is by our trust in that provision that healing is unlocked. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be. Come on, who's reading with? Take you to be with, with. Jesus says, I have come to be with you, but now I'm going to prepare a place so that I can take you to be with me. See it? It's always been God's intention. It's the origin of our story that we were designed to be with God. For the moment, we are out, and God comes to be with us, but his, his destination for us is that we could be with him. We were designed, made, created for, and intention to live in with God, in community, in relationship with him. And Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place so you can be with me. And now you know the way to the place. Of course, Thomas says, we don't know the where. I don't know where you're going. Jesus answers, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if you knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I am with him. When you see me, you see him. He, I, we are, it's we. And Philip says, show us the Father. We want to see him. That's all I need. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. I'll be happy with that. Just show us the Father. Doesn't that sound familiar? Haven't you done that before? God, I believe in you, but just get me out of this mess. And I believe. You know when this happens? When you're on the side of the freeway? You know what I'm talking about. The lights. You pulled over and you're like, oh, God. As the officer comes, you're like, oh, God, if you're really there, I promise you, I already got two points on my record. If you get me out of this one, Lord, I'll believe this will be enough for me, God. You with me? On that day, you're at, the, you're at school, you're in that test, you're doing that physics exam, and you didn't study, but you're like, oh, Lord Jesus. I know this is the only midterm, it's my only chance, Lord God, but... If you're there, if you give me a good grade, I'll believe this will be enough for me, Lord. You with me? This will be enough. Uh, Philip says, just show us the Father and this will be enough. And, and Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? After I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Have you seen me? See, Jesus is living out. That's why he heals. You see that? That's why he comforts. That's why he encourages. Because that is the heart of the Father. That's what it means to be with God. To live out the heart of God. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, if you've heard my words, if you've seen my touch, if you've hugged together, then you have hugged the Father because I am he. He is in me. I am in him. Look, 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 look. He says, <clears throat> uh, uh, um, if show us the Father, don't you believe that I am the Father? The Father is in me. The words I say are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. No, no, no. In fact, he or she will do even greater things than these. Did you catch that? Jesus says, everything that you're seeing me do, if you believe, you can do it too. And you know what I do when I read that? I think to myself, I want to live like that. Don't you? I want to live like that. I want to live the kind of life where I'm not trying to figure things out, but God says, this is the way. I want to live the kind of life where I take huge risks, but with confidence because I know God set me on them. I want to live the kind of life where I see suffering and I don't just go, oh, but I move towards it. And by the power of God, the blind can see. Don't you want to live like that? Wouldn't that be cool? In our mind's eye, when we hear the story, when I read the story and I see it and I think, wow, wouldn't that be amazing if God could walk among us now? Because if he was here, wouldn't you be asking for something? Isn't there some sort of blindness you want to be healed from? Isn't there some sort of disease you want to be free? Some hurdle you want to overcome? Don't you wish Jesus was here? And you could cry out, Rabbi, heal me. But Jesus seems to suggest that he is here. Better yet, that you could do what he does. Look, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Even greater things, greater things than these. I want to live like that. I want to live a kind of life where I'm not plan A and plan B and running away and trying to find my own way. I want to live a kind of life where I'm not running in shame or guilt and fear, hiding from my dad who's looking for me. I want to live the kind of life where I'm with God, where he is with me. And Jesus seems to suggest that it is actually possible. What do you think? Do you agree? See, I, I think it's interesting because in some ways we think we agree, but our own experience seems not to confirm our belief. You with me? Uh, <clears throat> in this book, I've been reading Life in the Spirit by Robertson McQuilkin. This is what he says. Just listen, okay? He describes two kinds of lives. One is the normal Christian life. Just bear with me. The normal Christian life. See if you can identify with this life. The normal Christian life. Normal Christian. God designs us to overcome temptation. So the normal Christian consistently obeys his laws, grows in self-control, contentment, humility, and courage. He or she, uh, no, God intends for our thought process to be so obedient to the Holy Spirit, so attuned to Scripture, that you and I authentically reflect Jesus' attitude and behavior. Like, like Jesus. In the normal Christian life, God has first place. Amen? <laughs> 
In the normal Christian life, we value the welfare above other, of others above our selfish desires. Spirit-filled Christians have power, not just for godly living, but also for effective service in the church. Above all, we have the joy of constant companionship with the Lord. Amen? You're like, I'm like Jesus. I'm walking with just constant companionship with the Lord. But he says, this is the author says, that's normal. That's what God designed. But this is what the average Christian looks like. You with me? Okay. The average church member typically thinks and behaves like morally upright non-Christians. Not much different. Uh, the average Christian is decent enough, but there's nothing supernatural about them. Their behavior is explainable in terms of heredity, early environment, and present circumstances. They often yield to temptation, lusting when their bodies crave it, coveting what they don't have, taking credit for their own accomplishments. And the touchstone of their choices is self-interest. Though they have a love for God and others, the fact that they have strained and broken relationships prove that the Holy Spirit does not control their lives. The average church member, listen, listen, experiences little change for the better. In fact, many of you seem to expect, seem not to expect much improvement, and you have little concern about the prospect for change. Scripture is not exciting. Prayer is just a job. And service in the church demonstrates little touch of the supernatural. Above all, life seems to be, that life seems to have an empty court. It does not center a constant personal companionship with the Lord. When I read that, I was like, ouch. Because the normal Christian life, the way we're designed, we all sort of imagine, yeah, that's what I want. But when I look at my average life, it's completely different. So what, what, what gives? Jesus says we could have that normal, constant companionship. In fact, that's how we were designed. We were made to be with God. He came to be with us, and he's taken us to be with him. This constant connect of with God, by God, empowered by God. But your life and mine, our average day and our average week, is more like what I just read. We are unconcerned with change. We think, well, minor improvements are good. Satisfied with very little of the supernatural in our lives. We think it's enough and it's okay to be morally upright. Let's fight for a cause. Let's pick it. Let's demonstrate. That makes us good. Let's donate to some environmental group and yay. But Jesus is not offering that here. He's offering something way, way different and way bigger. He says, if anyone believes, he will do what I have been doing and greater. I want to live like that. Don't you? Friends, I'm tired of just like getting by, aren't you? I'm tired of living a Christian life that is just like eking it out. I barely make it to Sabbath. You with me? I'm tired of living the kind of life where it's like straining, straining, and straining to get a little bit of joy. I want to live like that. I want to live a life that is full of the power and the presence of God. And the good news for you and I, friends, is we were made to live like that. We were created. It's a hunger deep in your soul that longs for that contact with God. You were designed to be a conduit, to be a vessel for the power of God in your homes, in your communities, in your own land. Jesus says, there in the next chapter in John 15, he says, I'm going to go, but when I go, I'll send another. 
a counselor. And in the original language, counselor means the one that walks alongside with you. See? Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send a counselor. And this counselor, which is God, the Holy Spirit, will be with you always. He will show you, teach you, lead you into all truth, convict you of the wrong things, and empower your life to do everything that I have been doing. I want to live like that. I want to live like that, don't you? I want to live the kind of life where it's not about me or what I can or cannot do, but where God is being constantly glorified because, because where I walk, healing follows. Because where I speak, there's a flavor of patience, love, and forgiveness. Because my relationships are marked by the fruiting of God's grace. Now, I can't make any of that happen. Y'all know me. I'm the eight-year-old that likes to run away with his daddy's money. That, but Jesus says it's not about what you can do. My Holy Spirit will come in your life and in your heart and transform you. Transform you and change you from, from what you are right now into what I designed you to be. To be with me in constant companionship with me. I believe it's possible and I'm challenging you and I to learn how. Over the last several weeks, we've been meeting every Saturday between 10 and 11 in there and talking about the Holy Spirit. Because friends, it's not just going to happen. You're not just going to sit here. I can do the thing, but I don't think anything is going to happen. I can preach a fancy sermon, but nothing's going to happen in your life. It's got to come into you. The words, the word got to come into your heart and your life. The Bible says that all the scriptures God breathed and given to us, we're meant to take it in. It's supposed to come in. But you've got to read it. You've got to learn it. We've got to study it. And God placed us with each other in community so we could sharpen one another. That's what the community is for. The Holy Spirit wants to unlock blessings here. But as long as you remain isolated, alone, and on your own, we put a lid on it. We put a cap on it. I want to live like that. And I invite you to take the risk, too. Let's jump in. Let's follow. Let's take Jesus at his word. And amazing things will happen. I believe that. I claim that today. Would you please stand and sing our closing song with us?